To celebrate the Fastest Known Time of the Year Award for 2019, we bring you this countdown episode supported by the California-based running apparel company, Rabbit. Before we get into the show, let's hear from Rabbit-sponsored runner, Eric Sensman. Hey guys, Eric Sensman, professional ultra runner here. As some of you might know, I'm sponsored by Rabbit, a super rad men's and women's performance running apparel brand from California that was founded by two female runners, Monica and Jill. I've been with Rabbit for a few years now, and the number one reason is definitely the clothes. Hands down, Rabbit makes the best running apparel I've ever worn. All the stuff is so damn soft, versatile, and comfortable, and at the same time, technical and functional. So when I'm racing for hours on the trails or going for an FKT, my favorite things to wear are the FKT shorts, because I can load everything into the four pockets along the waistband. I also love the Easy Tee, which actually comes in both a short and long sleeve, because it's seriously the softest shirt I've ever worn. And for my cold weather needs, I always throw on the Letter Zip hoodie, because it's the best running jacket I've ever run in. So anyway, go check them out, and I bet you'll agree that Rabbit makes the most comfortable running clothes you've ever worn. They're letting me give all you listeners 20% off your first purchase. So go over to runinrabbit.com and use the discount code FKT at checkout. This podcast concludes the 2019 Fastest Known Time of the Year Awards. Last week, we heard from the number five, number four, and number three FKT of the Year Award winners. And this podcast, we hear from the number two and the number one for female and male both, of course. It's a fun process because we get to talk and learn and hear from each other, be inspired. And here's a quick little note on how it works. We create a nominations list just to narrow it down because you can't really deal with 661 FKTs that were submitted in North America alone this year. And so we narrowed it down to 19 for female and 20 for male. And then a group of experienced voters, people who've done this before, that represent a gender, age, and geographic balance, they vote. And they're asked to vote for their top five, female and male. And then I simply assign a five-point score for their number one down to a one-point score for their number five and added up high-score wins. In case you're wondering, that's how it works. So there's no subjectivity to it. Uh, the people who run fastestknowntime.com really have no more say than anyone else. So it's a simple, objective process by the voters. And I think it yields a good result. My personal picks, no, no one's personal picks were the same as the final result. Isn't that interesting? No one came close to what the final result was but the community voted for what the final result is, and so I think it reflects a good representation of the community. Well, enough shuck and jive. You don't want to hear from me anymore. Let's hear directly, from, in their own words, from the people who were the number two and number one FKT of the Year Award winners. Our countdown continues on Fastest Known Time of the Year Award, speaking with Renee Elsden Jacobs from Truckee, California. Good afternoon, Renee. Hey, Buzz. Good afternoon to you, too. Well, back in September, there's a lot of activity in September, it seems, but on September 8th, you finished the California 14ers. Real briefly, there are 15 California 14ers. And it took you six days, four hours, and five minutes. You did that supported, which means there's someone to help drive you around. Uh, but that also means, not that doesn't mean that, but you in particular did this solo. Uh, I believe, not just in terms of fastest known times, but I believe you're the first woman at all to do the California 14ers primarily by yourself. And for that, the voters gave you the number two female FKT of the year. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thanks, Buzz. <laughs> well, thank, thanks you for pioneering this. You really got it done. And I should say the voting happened to be close on this one. Uh, the Literally the last person who voted ended up deciding the difference. So it was, it was pretty close. Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. And... They're, the Fort California 14ers, I find super interesting. I live in Colorado. The Colorado 14ers are well known. They've, people have been going after them for years. But California is a much cleaner project because Colorado 
it's frankly a lot of ridges. You can get up on a ridge and just run off four to six of them. And so they even they have to have rules uh, how much elevation prominence they need to have before they even count and how far down you have to go to start because Pikes Peak and Mount Evans have paved roads to the top. Uh, so it's kind of a logistical project, the Colorado 14ers. Well, California is more pure. The trailheads are way low, and so you're either going to climb it or you're not by fair means. Yeah, definitely. And I've spent a little bit of time in Colorado, and, and having grown up in California and spent a lot of time in the Sierras, it was quite a bit different, the, the style. Um, you know, it kind of just made me miss the Sierra. I, I, I like the um, the remoteness that you feel in the Sierra. and um, but of course, the quality of the rock was—I <laughs> learned that pretty quickly. That we're pretty lucky with our rock out here. You're really lucky. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Sierra Granite is world class. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, and it's—it's it's, you know, when I travel, it just makes me appreciate where I am all that much more. Well, looking at the California 14ers again. Listeners can click through on the website and find the history and find a link to your trip report on WordPress. You had a heck of a trip trip report. And I'm going to quote you on this, Renee. You start off by saying, I consider myself a relatively normal person without any particularly special skills. Some people might doubt that, but I'll continue here. You also said, I'm quoting, I also had something to prove. I really wanted to do my attempt solo. I was very disappointed that the only female attempt relied heavily on going with men. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was I, definitely I had a bug in my butt about it, and um, that <laughs> it. In, I mean, that was what in, it was also inspiration. You know, it's what drove me and got me excited about it, and you know, I just felt like there was no reason why a woman couldn't do it. But, uh, but right. yeah, <laughs> but in addition, it was sort of one of those things that I've been playing in the mountains for a while and, you know, nothing too serious, just going out with friends and, and honing my skills. And, and when I first learned about the California 14ers and the fact that no woman had done it solo yet, it was just like, well, I think I can do that. And, 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 you know, there's no reason why it hasn't been done yet. So what the heck, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but that, that matter-of-fact approach is, is in a way ordinary, but in another way, it's special. You just saw something, you said, hey, I can do this, and so you trained for it, and you indeed did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it all came together. Now, now, I'm looking at the names, and you said, uh, again, uh, no particularly special skill. So the previous people have been... Alex Honnold, Cedar Wright, might have heard those names. Yeah. Hans Hans Flooring, you know, like six times had the speed record on the nose. And the time that you beat was his former wife, Jacqueline Flooring. So there, there's some pretty big names here. So for someone with no particularly special skills, you you did pretty well. Well, thanks, Buzz. I, I mean, I still, I don't know, maybe it's just the human condition. We all kind of think of ourselves as being normal or, you know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what, you know, and it, it's also, you know, I live in Truckee surrounded by a lot of amazing people and it just, you know, I can't, maybe I look at Strava a little bit too much, but I can't help but, you know, think of myself as being pretty slow and I can't climb 513 and, you know, <laughs> all of that stuff, so. <laughs> well, that's that's classics. The 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 social media, and of course, Strava is a type of social media. And uh, you look at Strava, and basically, you suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh well. Yeah. But fortunately, in the world of FKTness, you don't, yeah. because in our world, you could conceive of something, and it's very egalitarian. I think that rim to rim to rim, the Grand Canyon, oh, man, I, th I think that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a hard number to beat. But things like this, you by practicing and training, then you could equalize. The playing field equalizes. Yeah, and I love that about the FKT land is that you can kind of pick the FKT that suits you best, whether that is just, you know, 
running as fast as you can on a trail or whether that is, you know, doing some scrambling in the mountains, it, it, you know, it's like what suits you best and gets you excited. And, and I mean, that's, that's really cool. So I'm, I'm definitely getting the FKT addiction. I've got, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm fantasizing about next year. Uh Oh, that's what happens. You get these long nights and short days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I believe you wrote in your blog that your husband actually suggested this one, which was a big help because also in your blog, you noted that one of the uh, training aspects you had to deal with was you have a two-year-old son now. So you have to yeah, work with that. And I'm definitely, you know, I am I, I, constantly trying to figure out how other people are doing it. It's really tricky to balance family life and, you know, keeping the husband happy and the kid happy and yourself happy. and yeah, so that was a a challenge that, you know, in some ways was kind of fun, like how to putting a puzzle together of how do I get the training in that I want and and I definitely ended up doing some new things that I've never done before. <laughs> yeah, and so in in terms of yeah, balancing. Um and I'm also I'm I'm an engineer, so it becomes um, you know, it's kind of a little a little puzzle to solve. Yeah, I just embraced it and enjoyed it. Wow. Now there is a connection. If I may point out what kind of engineer are you? A structural engineer? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You get to put your stamp yeah, on buildings. Uh -huh, exactly. Yeah. So I've spent most of my life designing buildings. And, um, and right now, I, you know, once I had my son, I just, I realized it wasn't as important anymore. And so now I'm, I'm doing the, the full-time mom thing for a little bit. Hmm, interesting. But you did have that engineer mentality there. You saw a problem, you wanted to solve it, rather than just throwing down and considering this a pure cardiovascular test. You saw it as a equation, and you figured the whole thing out it was more holistic in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of spreadsheets involved and a whole lot of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> research. And yeah, it was it was fun. All right. Well, the voters agreed. Uh, one voter noted, this is a huge link up, technical and serious. Another said what I just said, great to see a female do all the peaks alone. First time it's been done. And then another voter who's very, very skilled technically, I know, said the California 14ers require substantial logistics and a fair bit of mountaineering skill which is what I think you just said, the logistics is how to make it efficient, how to connect them. But what about the technical part, Renee? Um, I, I know Thunderbolt's got that boulder problem at the top. How much fifth class is in the Palisades? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fifth class. And of course, it you know depending on which exact route you take and who you're talking to, you know, whether it's fourth class or fifth class, you know, it, might be up for some argument but um yeah there's a decent amount it um officially thunderbolt is five nine and and um and i did end up doing the the aiding technique that where you can actually throw a rope over the, the summit and aid it instead of you know i was wearing solomon running shoes and <laughs> I, um, I've heard of people soloing it in, in running shoes, but, you know, especially having a two-year-old, that's not something that I was ready to, to entertain. So, yeah, so you... A, a free sole of 5'9 at 14,000 feet, nah. Yeah, with, with, I mean, and it's one of those, you know, you look down the side of it and it's literally like thousands of feet of exposure. So it's... Yeah. Right. So I think the technique is you literally throw it and then Jumar or uh, however, yeah. or however you want, whatever your rope yeah, technique exactly is. Yeah, exactly. Right. I use Prusix, a couple of Prusix. You can also, yeah, you uh, can also kind of do like some, a hand line. You can like put some, uh, some bites in the rope and use it as a hand line or so. Yeah. A couple of different ways of doing it. But... But there is, is other fifth class besides that. Right, right. Yeah, that's definitely the, 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 the trickiest. That's the hardest. And everything else was, was um, you know, below that. 
Okay. Okay. Um, you mentioned you're dreaming of 2020. Yeah. What are you thinking? <laughs> um, are you, do you want to spill the beans really or do you want to keep it under wraps? <laughs> there's a couple. I, um, <laughs> There's there's another one that I have my eye on. I'll give you a hint. It hasn't it hasn't yet seen a female FKT yet. So, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. I I am suspecting this is going to have a technical nature. A little also. bit, yeah. Just a little bit. Not nearly. Not quite like the fourteeners, but yeah. It'll be a little bit, um, a little easier. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well. It's Perfectly fair to keep a lid on it now. I, I always got, I'm going to ask because it's always fun to hear. But if you want to keep a lid on it, that's totally <laughs> fair. You know, you got to hatch your project. You got to let it gestate. You have to, and then you know, a week before you're ready to go, then you could announce it. Then if someone else gets the idea, well, it's too late. Well, you yeah, got first and I know, I know that I've I've heard that there are some other people. I know that there's been some attempts done, and I know that it, it's on some other people's radar. So. Yeah, we'll see who makes it first. Okay, Renee, this is good. You've whetted our appetites. This means I will probably be speaking with you. Uh, I shouldn't say next year. It is next year. <laughs> I will be speaking with you later on this year. Yeah. <laughs> good. Well, congratulations on the number two female FKT of the year. And it was a delight talking Thanks, with Buzz. you. It was great to talk to you, too. I've, I've been listening to your podcast and, and enjoying it. So thanks for all the work you're doing. You're welcome. We're back, this time with Josh Perry, talking to us all the way from over the pond from Leeds, United Kingdom. Welcome, Josh. Hey, Buzz. Thanks for having me. Well, you are a native of England, but you have done an incredible amount of hiking and running, mostly in the United States. But what you are being honored here for today is hiking the Arizona Trail, which you did this October, finishing it after 14 days, 12 hours and 21 minutes. And you did it self-supported, which is classic through hiker style. And your time was faster than the fastest supported time. So for that, the voters gave you the number two male FKT of the year award. So congratulations, Josh. Thank you very much. That's a yeah. surprise. Yeah. Well, you're all the way over there in England, so it is a, it's a little different conversation. But this is incredible. I, you, you've walked 4,300 miles and run 2,000 miles just this year alone. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wanted to start training seriously for the Pacific Crest Trail, which was my main goal this summer. Um, How did that go? Uh, I was about two days ahead of record pace when I found out I was allergic to wasps and went into anaphylactic shock for a couple oh. of days. Oh, you got bit by a wasp? Yeah, yeah, right around the California-Oregon border. And you were, at that point, you were two days ahead of the FKT? Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Um, so I had to quit on that one, which was, you know, disappointing, but it happens. But I, so I was doing a very high volume of training to prepare for that. And then I just well, said, uh, well, let's, 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 let's know what does high mean to you? We, we have a lot of different people on this podcast. So what does high mean to you? Um, so I was training, I averaged four and a half or four, three and a half to four hours of training a day for five months. Wow. Um, which was, I was averaging about 25,000 foot of vert a week, anywhere between kind of 60 and 150 miles. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. And then you tried the PCT, you got bit by a wasp, and you also tried the John Muir Trail. Yeah. And the Long mm -hmm. Trail. And the long trail. Now, what happened? I know what happened in the long trail, but what happened on the JMT? Um, I got really bad altitude sickness. Uh, come, I, I was puking before I'd even summited Whitney. And then by Forrester, I was stumbling. And by Glen Pass, I just, I was just 
dying. <laughs> I could wow. barely, barely walk. So I hiked back down Glen Pass and spent the night in an emergency bivvy. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Well, you do come from a seafaring island nation. Yeah. So one can't be too faulted for that. Wow, Josh. But then you did the long trail and you yeah. set an FKT on that. But then six weeks later, Jeff Garmier, who we just spoke with in the previous week's podcast, uh, six weeks after that, he bettered your time on the long trail. Yeah, that was kind of funny. Um, there, was, <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of action as soon as I finished it. There were three or four right. other attempts in the next month. Right. Right. And now the AZT, you flip-flopped it because in the spring – Jeff set the FKT in the Arizona Trail, and then in October you went back and took it down again. Yeah, that was a, a slight element of competition there. <laughs> well, it was it was pretty solid. You were uh, uh, over a day faster than Jeff, so you didn't just take a minute or two off. off. So that that was yeah. fair. And I know that, as you just said, both the Long Trail and the Arizona Trail have heated up. It's, there's a lot of action here. So what's what's up? Tell me, what do you like about the Arizona Trail? Of course, for people who don't know, it's just like the Long Trail, except in a desert. And, of course, it's longer than the Long Trail, 800-plus miles, going from the Utah border down to the Mexican border. just crosses Arizona. But what... What brought you to Arizona? Um, I was originally going to do Cam Honan's Southwestern Horse Show, which linked up the Hayduke Trail with the Arizona and the Grand Enchantment Trails. Oh, interesting. Now, uh, what's the name of that again? The Southwestern Horse Show. Southwestern Horseshoe. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but then after, on the Hayduke, I realized I still had a three or four boxes of food left from my PCT attempt. And it had, you know, two failures on the PCT and the JMT. So I wanted to, you know, have, try, have one last go at pushing myself and they, you know, it lined up perfectly with an Arizona trail attempt. So, well, that's uh, okay. So you, you, you just didn't want to eat those cliff bars back home. And so you decided to hike the Arizona trail. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> but so am I, is this a, an excellent example of British dry humor? Yes. It, it, there's a, there is a slight element of truth to it, though. I mean, <laughs> I, I was sick of all the food, but I wasn't going to throw it away. Mm -hmm. Right. Trail food is a little hard to eat when you're at home, isn't it? Yeah, especially when there's, you know, 8,000 calories a day worth. <laughs> it's looking at that amount of food like right in normal day-to-day -day circumstances makes you feel a bit queasy okay. realizing you can eat that much well speaking of which if people click through as i always suggest they can go to your trip report your arizona trail trip report and you notice that you came into patagonia and i should note patagonia is a small town in southern arizona not the patagonia in south america and you noted that when you got to the cafe there, you ate four burritos, large plate of nachos, two muffins, ice cream, and a bag of neon sour worms. So this is classic thru-hiker style, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I have thru-hiker roots. I came to running later on. So I, I do it all like a thru-hiker. Do it all like a thru-hiker. Well, let's, let's focus on that for a second. So to do the AZT in that time frame... That means you averaged 55 miles per day. Is that all hiking? Pretty much. Um, the first week I was out, I averaged 57 miles a day because I wanted to break a 400-mile week. And then hmm. I got a stress fracture uh, about just 350, 400 miles in, and I kind of slowed down a bit for the second week. But hmm. it, it was pretty much all hiking. Well, this is one of our themes on the FK and the Fastest Known podcast. There's a lot of famous ultra runners. We've had some of the most famous ultra runners in the world on this podcast. And generally speaking, they do not hold any of the times on the longer trails. After about seven days 
if, if that much, it flips over and through hikers such as yourself have all the fastest times. That's interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, yeah, I wonder if, because there's just not enough attention on these things, you're never going to, you're not, you're not currently attracting the kind of the cream of the crop when it comes to ultra runners. So hmm. the rec I think the, rec I think the records, I think there's plenty of, ult of elite ultra runners who could come along and knock a good chunk of time off these records. But they haven't. Yeah. Because it, it, <laughs> it, it, would, it would take them out of the season for too long. You know, mm. If you have to do it peak season, mm. most of them can't afford to do something for two weeks and then have to spend a month recovering from it if they want mm -hmm. to do a season of racing. Mm -hmm. But averaging 57 miles a day while just hiking, not yeah. running a step, Hmm. See, to me, that's efficiency. That's being yeah. extremely methodical. And yeah. for what I've seen from the top ultra runners, can't seem to learn that technique. Yeah. They can't seem to understand the relentless forward motion protocol that the through hikers have all learned. Yeah. And I think the Arizona Trail for me was a lesson in efficiency. Right. I, lots of things I did differently on there that were just very small tweaks to save, you know, a few minutes here and there, but it all, it all added up over the course of an 18 to 20 hour day. Well, what's one of those tips since you're obviously a very experienced person? So the backpack I used, it had I mean, six shoulder strap pockets plus a bottom pocket plus side pockets that you could reach all the way around. So the only you, time it had... Yeah, you never took it off. No, I would take it off once a day. Wow. Um, to take to take my fleece off once it kind of transitioned from the cold morning to the daytime. The rest so of the else I did it would stay on. Once you started walking, you just kept walking. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, your last day you just walked into the night, eighty-three miles. So that's a solid running effort, but you did eighty-three miles without running. Yeah, it's consistency. <laughs> I, had, I did stop for a couple hours um, because I didn't have enough warm clothes and come 3 or 4 a.m., my water bottles was frozen and I was in shorts and my zipper on my fleece had broken and I just couldn't stay warm. So I had to lay down for a bit to get warm again. I but. see. Okay. All right. Well, the voters uh, were impressed that you took down Jeff Garmier's FKT and a big competitive route, which is true. I think the voters, to some extent, they look at something that's bold, something that's innovative, inspirational, but also the competitive nature of it. And the Arizona trails become quite competitive. Like you said, uh, a woman did it, said a female FKT this year as well. Yeah. Yeah. She so, started 24 hours after me. Oh, um, I, f I found out she was going to do it about four hours before I started hitchhiking to the trailhead. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a bit, it was a, you know, a bit of a boost. It was sp spurring me on, knowing someone was behind me. Oh, and that I, oh. I, I, re I really couldn't let them, I really couldn't meet them. Because if I met them, something <laughs> could go horribly wrong. Oh, I like it. So her name is Helen uh, Galacaris, and she did it... Uh... Um, right, right a day after you. That's, that's good. It's like in a, a Tour de France time trial. If the person who starts two minutes behind you catches you, you know you're not doing very well. So yeah, you, you had to keep it. You had to keep it up. Yeah. Well, and I, Josh, and I was fine. sorry. Well, I'm reading your blog, mm -hmm. and I'm quoting. I still view my AZT hike as a failure. I'm fed up of setting goals, narrowly missing them, then justifying why that's okay. This is interesting. So you're you're still pushing it, obviously, and you obviously set the FKT and even were awarded number two male of the year, and yet you didn't quite do what you set out to do, and you still think there's more. Yeah. I think there's a good day to go off that time self-supported. Uh, so someone could take a day off. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Um, I, especially after the long trail, when I, on the last night, I was far enough ahead of record pace, I knew I'd break Travis's time. And because my feet were hurting, I decided to sleep for eight hours. I didn't need to, but it was just the easy way out. And it nagged at me, and it made the, the whole long trail feel very disappointing because you just didn't push as much as you could. And then I feel like I was hoping to not do the same, not repeat that process on the Arizona Trail, and I did. Hmm. So I, in other I words, could, you, had I, in the, you had it in the bag, so you took your foot off the gas. Yeah. My goal was always to break 14 days, and up until day 9 or 10, I was on pace to do that, and then I started falling a bit behind, and then I had a two and a half hour delay waiting for a food package at Hijinx Ranch, and after that I realized, I just, instead of being spurred on to push harder, I just, I eased off, because my mm -hmm. leg was hurting. Mm -hmm. um, Very understandable. You're by yourself. This is self-supported. Yeah. It's not like you're coming in every three hours and your crew is going, go, Josh, you're doing great. You're by yourself for 14 days. And so if you get a two and a half hour delay, just like if you take a wrong turn, how demoralizing that can be, <laughs> it can be hard to come back. Yeah. Yeah, I did that as well. I went the wrong way down in Saguaro National Park. Um, well, that's, it's, pretty, that's it's pretty demoralizing. <laughs> it is. Well, that's that's the game, though. That's why yeah. you self-supported through hikers have a particular mentality to enable to be resilient and determined at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting part for me there is when you come across other through hikers, mm. there's, there's a part of you that's kind of craving the conversation and you want to slow down and talk to them for a bit. But, but then... But then you have that nagging sense of guilt as well that you're you should you shouldn't be slowing down. You know that desire to talk to people isn't worth it in the end. Right. Yeah. Because things have gotten competitive. Yeah. Well, Josh, you are a native of England, and you're doing a lot here in the United States as well as there. So, what's next for you? This is going to be interesting. What's 2020 looking like? Um. Well, I through hiked for six years consecutively now so i'm hoping to take a year off and ah. spend some time in the uk um i'm looking at cape wrath trail fastest known time which is up okay. in scotland um and then there's well i was hoping to get into the barclay marathons this year which is not happening mm. and so you've already been told I've been, it's been suggested that I'm not getting in. I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know the process perfectly, but someone I know who's done it before has said I would know by now. Mm. Well, in fact, know. a person we just mentioned on this podcast did get in. So I'm not going to mention any names, but yeah, yeah. Barkley, Barkley's a strange little beast, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so my backup plan, if I didn't get into Barkley, was to do the three British rounds consecutively. Right. So like John Kelly's grand round, but without the cycling. That, that John Kelly's, oh yeah, the cycling, that was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what can we say? I mean, John won. I mean, he he's the last yeah. person to finish Barclay. Now we're talking about Barclay, but the three classic rounds, and he tried to cycle in between them. Yeah. That was, and of course, he's a triathlete. So he's on this full-on carbon fiber aerobike going between these giant treks. Yeah, I don't think any of the fell runners who were helping him out expected the bike. <laughs> I think they were all expecting, you know, a little gra a granny bike, not <laughs> some sleek carbon aero helmet and everything. Right. It was, it was a good look, good photo. So you might <laughs> try the uh, repeating... Uh, Oh, John didn't finish, but you might want yeah. to try to do the grand round, which but having someone drive you between yeah. on the two sections, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, would, it would be the good round. It would be a very, very good round. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, this has been a delight speaking with you. Congratulations on the number two male FKT of the year. And it sounds like we might get a chance to speak with you uh, 
later on this year. Yeah, I've got I've got some big goals still, so hopefully things will go as planned. Definitely. I hope to talk with you again. Cheers. We're about to wrap up the 2019 FKT of the year with the number one female. And that the voters awarded Arlette Lon for the New Hampshire 4,000 footers, which she did unsupported and self-powered. And she finished that on September 9th of this year. Now, interestingly, we have talked with every single person, except we could not speak with Arlette. Instead, we have an amazing stand-in, so to speak, Heather Anderson, to tell us a few things about what Arlette did. So welcome, Heather. Hi, Buzz. Good to talk to you. It's always good talking with you. We've spoken before, and of course, I would love to give people your bio, but you would feel embarrassed by that. You don't want anyone else to hear that. But suffice <laughs> to say that you have extraordinary credibility. You're the author of a book that came out this year. And at one point, you held the the, the uh, self-supported FKTs on the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Arizona Trail all at the same time. So you have credibility to speak about what Arlette did. Except I haven't done what she did, which is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. But, but let's first note why Arlette can't speak to us. So do you give us a quick heads up on what she's doing now? So uh, what she refers to as the Duracissima, which is doing all the New Hampshire 4,000 foot peaks, there's 48 of them, entirely in a self-supported manner, meaning she doesn't get in a car and drive from trailhead to trailhead. She is walking the entire time. So that is what her FKT of the year was uh, last September. And currently, she and her husband are out there attempting the first ever winter Duracissima of the New Hampshire 4,000 foot peaks. So she and he have been out there, I think, for about two weeks now in the snow and the cold and with floods and all this crazy business. Uh, so, yeah, she is a little bit unavailable to be on the podcast. <laughs> well, I think that's a reasonable excuse. What do you think? I think that's probably legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just check the weather report. <laughs> and like for for Mount, you don't want to check the weather report. Mount Washington, a, a chance of snow and sleet. Then a chance of sleet. Then a chance of snow and sleet. Uh, west winds seventy to seventy five miles an hour. Gusts as high as ninety five miles an hour. So that's yeah. what Arlette and her husband are doing right now. It's pretty intense. Okay. All right. <laughs> so what she did back in September was interesting. There's forty eight, as you said. 4,000 foot or higher summits in New Hampshire. And these have, done in, have been done in different styles. And I encourage people to go to the website and click through because wow. there's really interesting trip reports here that go back over 100 years. New Hampshire has, has a long history, but she did it uh, unsupported, which means not even cached and self-powered. So wasn't driven or biked to the trailhead. She walked nonstop, carrying all her own food for basically nine days. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she has, and that was her second time doing this. Um, she did it a few years ago, and she wasn't uh, um, happy with her time, so she went and did it again, and now she's out there in the winter. Um, but yeah, it's a super incredible um I mean, I've been on, obviously, the AT through that area multiple times. And uh, last year, or not last year now, I guess two years ago now, during my calendar year Triple Crown, there was extremely bad weather in the presidentials. And Arlette, who works as a guide in um, the White Mountains, and her husband actually helped me come up with a, an alternate around the presidential range um, during bad weather. And so I got a little taste of what the White Mountains are like off of the Appalachian Trail down in the Dry River Wilderness. And it rivals some of the most rugged, burliest um, wilderness terrain um, that I've seen in this country uh, anywhere. Um, and I know that a lot of parts of this um, self-powered New Hampshire 4,000-footers uh, route travels terrain like that, where there's no trails and um, everything's eroded and not well marked, and just because a lot of people don't go down there. Um, not to mention to get to some of the summits in the most direct manner, you're bushwhacking through that stuff um, because and taking lesser known trails. So it's it's pretty it's a pretty hardcore 
route. And I mean, it is up to each person to determine how they do it. Um, but obviously, the most uh, direct manner of achieving all of these summits isn't necessarily always going to be on trails. That's a good point, Heather. So it's an op- oh. it's what we call an open course. Correct. You just summit all 48 on foot, and how you do it is up to you. And mm-hmm. so there's local knowledge is required. Mm-hmm. An outsider is going to come in. They're just going to have to take the trails, but the trails are going to be more roundabout. So you could just bushwhack straight up through the woods, but mm-hmm. that's going to be slower and harder. So this is tactically interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, she's climbed a lot of these peaks before, and um, like I said, she guides there. And so, yeah, that local knowledge is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a challenging a challenging set of peaks. I mean, we had uh, uh, Sue Johnson had her um, her grid, I think, was up for nomination last year. And, and then Amanda Phillip um, did that whole grid thing again. Um, where you're climbing all these peaks in every month of the year. Um, but doing this entire set self-powered is just like a whole nother thing um, to just be out there um, the entire time, and especially um, doing it in an unsupported manner. Um, there's a lot of, uh, especially in the summer months, I mean, there's, there's huts in the whites. Um, they're fully staffed where you can buy food, and um, you could even stay overnight. Um, you know, you cross roads where there's stores and you know, things that are accessible, um, it's very much easier to do a self-supported effort out there. Um, but doing it unsupported um, just makes it all the more difficult. I mean, especially with that much uh, food and gear on your back and lugging it cross-country and up really steep grades. Um, the steepness of the terrain in the White Mountains is, is very um, notable, um, even though the peaks aren't particularly high. Um, they're very steep and very rocky. Um, there's a big challenge to that. Um, and having attempted an unsupported uh, FKT before, I can tell you how hard it is to walk past uh, a place to acquire yummy food or get dry or, you know, anything like that. And so for her to be passing by all of these <laughs> options right. is a whole nother level of uh, mental fortitude for sure. Right. That's a very, that's something that I thought of right away, Heather, to be honest is that I'm familiar with the area. And to do this, she was crossed roads dozens of times. Mm -hmm. Not only that, she probably, of course, she went past many of the huts. Mm -hmm. And she also could have almost walked through towns, but did not resupply, Mm -hmm. did not buy a burrito. But that is kind of interesting. So it's an interesting style. The voters clearly rewarded the unsupported self-powered style. And yet, me personally, I think I would have done it self-supported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, there's definitely uh, up to the individual athletes how they wanna um, how they wanna choose their endeavor, you know. And um, I think that self-supported or supported, obviously, we're going to give you the best results as far as time, especially on a route like this. Like the less uh, weight you have on your back, you know, the better, uh, especially for steep, you know, off-trail stuff. But there is just something, um, I think, very rewarding about feeling like you're completely self-reliant. I know for myself, like those times, even though I failed to set my unsupported FKT, um, it was really empowering to be out there and just know that you were completely self-contained and that there was it was just you in the mountains. Um, so I think that that's a, a very interesting category. And I, I like to see the different routes that people do. Um, especially this year's list had quite a few unsupported um, routes like the long trail. Um, and I think that it's very interesting to see the people that choose to do unsupported on some of these routes. You're right. And of course, you are one of our voters. So you notice the nominations. Mm-hmm. And that was a trend, wasn't it? It was. Uh, there was more unsupported. And there is more unsupported by females, I think. Mm-hmm. And there is more solo by females. And just we've, we've done this four years now. In the first couple of years, there wasn't that many solo females, yourself notably accepted. Uh, now it's clearly there. Yeah, that was definitely something I noticed this year in the voting. And I was very impressed by um, not only um, the variety of routes chosen, but also, yeah, the the increase in female, especially solo female participants. Right. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. 
Well, again, I encourage listeners to click through to the website because uh, Arlette has a wonderful trip report here. I could start reading it because it's so juicy, but I'm not going to do that. People should click through. And then they can read the history of this. Like you said, Sue Johnson, the grid for those grids, <laughs> gridding is a big thing back there. Not so much elsewhere, but a grid is when you do every summit and every month of the year. So it's essentially 48 times 12. And so when Sue did the New Hampshire grid, she was pretty close to 1 million feet of vert for that year. Yeah, gridding is a whole other beast for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, um, that's that's why the, the, the process is so fun, isn't it? Yeah. You get to, there's, like you said, there's these different styles. Every individual decides what's meaningful to them and then pursues that. And we all get to look at it and say, wow, I want to do that. Or, wow, I don't want to do that. It's all the same thing. It's all inspirational. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Heather, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I hope to hear from you in 2020. I hope so, too. <laughs> and now to wrap up the FKT of the year 2019, we go on to the number one male. And now for our number one male fastest known time of the year, I'm speaking with Carl Egloff from Quito, Ecuador. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, boss. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, Happy New Year to all of you. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, the nomination. It's a huge honor for me here from the middle of the world from Quito. Well, good to hear that, Carl. And it's no surprise what you were nominated for. On June 20th, you went up and down Denali, the highest mountain in North America, in Alaska in 11 hours and 44 minutes, which is, it was one minute faster than Killian Jornet did it, but he used skis, so this was definitely the fastest on foot time. And for that, you have been awarded the number one numero uno male FKT of the year. So congratulations. Whoa. This is a, an amazing uh, news that you gave me. Thank you so much for all those who but what is for me, it's, a, it's an honor. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm very pleased that uh, this project uh, was successfully. Uh, as everyone knows, Denali is um, not that easy in, in facts of weather, in facts of conditions. You have to be very patient. Uh, you have to, you have to uh, take decisions uh, in between weather and and cold temperatures on the upper part of the mountain. And also when is the best time of the day to be fast on the under part of the mountain, which made it this challenge a really huge challenge. So uh, if you are running from the base camp from Denali uh, very early in the morning, everything is frozen. Everything is perfect to be fast. But when I returned from the summit, uh, everything was melted, everything was warm, and it was really very tough to come back to the base camp, uh, especially without the skis. So it made it really, really hard the last, uh, the last two camps to the base camp back. And um, I was also very happy that on that day, almost 350 people were moving in between camps and to the summit that day was one of the most crowded days on Denali. So uh, on the beginning, we thought ah, probably there will be too many people to do it, but uh, it was a good thing because they made a, a very good path and uh, a lot of people turned around and they were cheering for me. And this was nice because uh, the guy with the snowshoes, the guy from Ecuador is coming. So they were cheering. They were giving me some water, some something to drink. And uh, it, it really became something like familiar and and even on the way back from the summit to the camp four, uh, I remember they made a kind of a corridor where a lot of people were standing and just cheering with me. Uh, I felt like I would be doing a race in Europe. So it was really, really nice feelings. And I'm very thankful for, for Denali and, and also for, for the amazing people down there in Alaska. Wow, what a terrific story, Carlos. You're up there, you know, obviously Denali's you know, 20,000 feet. 
And yet people were there and you had good, reasonably good conditions, even though the snow is very soft and people were cheering. People knew what you were doing. That's terrific. Yeah, I guess on the beginning, when we went the first year in 2018, uh, we did the recognition of the mountain. We went up to the summit and on the way back, we were waiting for the perfect window to try the FKT. But this perfect window never arrived on 2018. So we were staying seven days on the base camp, waiting and waiting, and, and we were not so, not so lucky. And on this year, 2019, where we have right now 2020, but last year, 20, uh, 2019, when we re, uh, went back to the Nali, uh, we had gorgeous weather. I was so surprised to be on the end of June there. Um, every day was really, really hot. Uh, at night, it became cold, of course, but not that cold as in May. And uh, a lot of people were waiting for the perfect window to, to, to arrive to the summit, to make the summit attempt. And uh, so the people, and especially the 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 quantity of people were on the upper camps, in Camp 4 and Camp 5, were tons of tents uh, and, and people moving from one tent to the other. So it was really nice because on that part of the mountain is where you need the most motivation, where you are feeling the altitude, where you are moving slow. So uh, it was really, really nice. We had a perfect day. Uh, we, we were around midday on the summit, a little bit later, around 2 p.m., and conditions were perfect. Um, just the minutes before we arrived to the summit, there was kind of a jet stream, very, very strong winds. And a lot of people had to turn around because of this, with, uh, these very, very strong winds. But we were lucky because the weather turned for good. And when we were on the final reach, uh, arriving to the summit, I was, I was so pleased to see everything up there and, and spend a few minutes up there before I, I went all the way down. On the way down, it was a, a bit complicated because there were a lot of people and to move fast on the way down is difficult if you have to avoid the, the normal path, if you have to step on the side. So until camp four, I was going um, very carefully, uh, taking care of every step, especially on the Denali Pass as you are running without a rope. And uh, as soon as I arrived on camp four, all the way down to the to the base camp, I did it alone. I almost did not see anyone uh, till I arrived to the base camp. And uh, on the base camp, there were a couple of people waiting for me since the morning. And uh, I remember the first thing when I stopped the watch and I saw I did 11 hours 44. Uh, Killian did by the fact 11.48. So it, it was uh, four minutes faster than Killian. And, uh, but on the end, it's the most important thing is I went to Alaska for the summit time. Uh, when I was there two hours and five minutes before Killian, I noticed that I could make the way down faster than he made it overall. So this is when this, the, the, the way down started for me. It was kind of improvised and uh, I gave it all to be faster on foot than he on skis. And on the end, it was really, really tight. But, um, you know, tight results make it interesting. <laughs> and when I arrived to the Camp, uh, a lot of people were cheering and I remember the first people who came to me said, Carl, what can we do for you? And I said, I just need a Springles and a, a Coke. And they just brought that and I was a happy man. <clears throat> well, terrific, Carl. That's an excellent story. And that's it. Like you said, two things there. One is Denali is very far north. It's at 63 degrees north latitude. So it's a cold mountain. And if it's a storm, you can't go. You just have to abandon the trip. Well, for example, Aconcagua is almost, it's on the tropics. It's at 32 degrees. So Denali is a serious mountain. It's good you got the good conditions. Absolutely. Um, I have I have experienced Denali on a bad mood uh, the year before. We were on a camp, on camp three waiting for a good day and snow came in and we were waiting for days to move. So uh, I've, I've read so much about Denali and something that you read everywhere and every, everywhere it's written is that you have to be patient, that uh, if the bad weather is coming in, it can, it can be one or two days or even a week that you have to wait for a good weather. So 
we we trained for that when when i say we because uh i always travel with a with my teammate who is in charge of my safety when we are on the mountain and we always travel together so it's of course much more fun if you're traveling with someone else and on denali on the second trip 2019 we were very lucky because uh yeah some little wind and some little snow came in but in the eight days that we were there um we we really cannot claim we had almost perfect weather and on the end we are mountaineers so uh you are aware of of how fast weather can change on denali and um and how dangerous it can it, it can be from one minute to the other so i was taking all all these uh, options with me on my backpack and uh, we were aware that it can change immediately that the bad weather can um can stop us for from any attempt so on the end you are always very thankful that everything came together excellent and i'd like to clarify that of course Killian was using skis which wouldn't actually count the same so you can one can get an overall speed time like on mount blanc mount rainier uh denali skiing but on foot is a different record anyway but still you beat it by four minutes regardless but it was interesting because without scaring carrying skis you were two hours five minutes going up faster but then coming down it's going to be way slower so you really had to work it coming back down absolutely actually you 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 said it right uh, there are different times uh, different attempts without skis uh, you always can can see the positive and the negative thing of both going by foot or going by skis on on the beginning for example when Kilian started from the base camp to camp 1 uh, of course, with skis helps you a lot to move faster because even running with snowshoes, you cannot be running as fast as without snowshoes or with skis. But um, and the and the upper camps with the skis on the back or moving with the skis, probably without them, you are faster. Um, so you can always discuss what is what is faster on the way up, but definitely on the way down by foot, you cannot compare it with skis. So. Um, Kilian had a little bit uh, bad weather on those days than when, when he was there in Alaska. And uh, uh, we have done different uh, records or mountains together in different times. And I'm, I'm definitely behind all the seven summits uh, without skis, just all by foot. It's kind of my religion of my project that all are the same. So even on the beginning, uh, people criticized me and they, they said, well, without skis, why? And I said, because I'm doing all the projects the same, even on Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua, all those I have done the same, where people start to walk and where people stop to walk all the way up and down to the summit and back. So uh, I wanted to do the, the ascent time, the best time uh, on the way up. And when, when I was there, as you said, and you mentioned two hours and five minutes before Kilian, I said to myself, well, I have two more hours to beat his downhill record. So I started to move as fast as possible. Everything was smooth. Everything was going very good until the last two camps. That means when I arrived to camp two, almost the way back to the base camp, it was terrific because I had to... I had really to to step into the snow until the knees it was it was wet it was it was cold everything was melted so the last uh five six miles were the hardest on the project but i'm happy everything came together right excellent um the voters definitely acknowledge this so i'll read you some what some of the voters said one person wrote, mm -hmm. Denali is one of the seven summits. So many world-class climbers play there. That's really true. We'll get back to that in a minute. And another person who's very informed, this is a, a good comment. He wrote, Carl is clearly a machine at altitude. Killian and Carl both ran Zagama a few weeks before. Killian won in 3.52 and Carl was 52nd at 4 hours 45. And so they're noting that you have extraordinary ability at altitude. 
And indeed, Denali, the vertical gain on that is 13,110 feet. So you are kind of a monster going up at altitude, aren't you? <laughs> Thank you so much for that comment. Actually, yes, indeed. This is a, a very good comment because uh, a few weeks before, I, I was struggling, really struggling on Segama. Uh, I imagine myself running to the top 10 and uh, I, it was really a hot day in Pegama. I was struggling with the temperatures. I was struggling with everything. And on the end, I was far away from, from uh, catching Kilian on the race. But on the altitude, I feel much better. I live at the altitude of Colorado. I almost, we live here in Quito at almost 3,000 meters, which would be around nine, almost 10,000 feet. This is where we live and train every day here. So I'm used to the altitude. And, and uh, every time we are behind the seventh summit, we always try to be as fast as possible until 14,000 feet. So we don't lose time uh, in between the other record holders. And starting from 14,000 up to the summit, we just give it all because this is our place. And this is where I feel the most comfortable. This is where, where I train a lot. I'm, um, I'm very happy to, to have all these beautiful, very high mountains here, just an hour and a half away from Quito. I can drive to, to, the, to the base of Cotopaxi, which is uh, almost 17,000 feet, and I can go up to the summit almost 20,000 feet uh, the same day and come back to, to lunch for, at home. So this is something that uh, is a huge privilege for me. And uh, I, I, has, I have tried in the last years to be much a faster trail runner, but are two different things. To be fast on the mountain and to be fast on a trail running event are two different trainings. And I try as much as possible to do both as good as possible. But I know that uh, my, my, main, uh, my main positive thing about uh, as, as an athlete, where, what I make the best is in the altitude. I feel much better. So I'm really happy that, that uh, when I arrived at Camp 4 in Denali, we were having exactly the same time as Killian. And I knew that from there to the summit, uh, I could make a difference. And in just camp five and the summit, this, uh, I made a, a difference of two hours and five minutes. So I moved very good on the altitude and I, I really had a good day. Too. Excellent. Well, at this point in all our conversations, I ask the person what they're going to do next. But for you, that's an easy question and an obvious answer because your project is dramatic. It's huge. You're going for the seven summits. And so I will note that you have the FKT in Kilimanjaro, 2014, Aconcagua, 2015, Elbrus, 2017, and now Denali, 2019. So that's four down, three to go. Absolutely. You did it. You, say, you said it right. And I'm so happy that uh, something that looked really far away right now, it's coming together. And um, 2020, I'm going, well, in just three weeks, I'm going to guide again for the 13th season uh, to Aconcagua. I will be training there. I will be doing one, two, three summits for, for pre-acclimatization for this year, uh, guiding people as this is my job. I'm a mountain guide. And uh, further on this year, I will uh, be going for the FKT or a good attempt on Karsten's Pyramid, which is the highest mountain in Indonesia. And then uh, if, if the budget allows me, I would love to go this year, uh, closing the year 2020 to Vincent and just leave it open for the next two years to close this amazing project with Everest. Wow. Thank you. So it's Karsten's Pyramid, which is in the Papua New Guinea, it's in the jungle. And then, but it's higher than the, any mountain in Australia. So it counts as uh, one of the seven summits. And then Vincent Massif, which is Antarctica, that's gonna be cold. And then 2021 or 2022, the biggie Chumalungma Mount Everest. Exactly. You said it right. 2021. I hope I can be there, train there, see how it goes. It's a, it's a, another level, uh, to be fast over 8,000 meters. Um, I know that. So, uh, I will take this, uh, two years of preparation going once, twice. If I, if I can, if I have the budget 
I can do many attempts before, but definitely I would love to close the project 2022 um, because I will be already 41 years old. So <laughs> you don't want to run to the mountains uh, uh, too long <laughs> anymore. It's risky. Good call. Well, Carl, thank you for sharing this excellent story. Congratulations again on number one male FKT of the year. And I think we will be talking with you again in 2020. It would be a huge pleasure, Boss, any time to talk to you. It's uh, it's really a, a huge honor for me uh, that everyone, um, what I got the most votes of, of the people. So thank you so much. I will uh, keep learning my English. I hope I can visit you guys there in Colorado soon. I, I'm in love with Colorado. I was this year in August there. I hope next time we can we can see each other and, and we can do some, some nice interviews. Excellent, Carl. I look forward to seeing you. And in the meantime, vaya con Dios. <laughs> Muchas gracias, igualmente. Un abrazo. <laughs>